The New Age Christianity Podcast is brought to you by... Hello, New Age Christian family. This is Austin Fletcher. You are listening to the New Age Christian Podcast, and this is episode number 29. Today, we're going to talk about sin. Oh, yeah. Sin and sanctification. Uh, Today's episode is actually a response to a handful of questions that I got about episode number 26 about salvation from what? The real question that people begin to ask when they realize, okay, so if we weren't saved from an angry God, if we weren't saved from hell, if we weren't saved from this lie that we have become comfortable with about us being the problem, then that's fine and dandy. But what do you do with the fact that bad stuff happens, people still mess up, and there is, quote unquote, a lot of unrighteousness in our lives? Is sin a thing? Is sanctification a process? Does it ever have an end? Lots of questions around this, and I'm hoping to unpack as much as possible. So let's get started. All right, here we are going to talk about, I think maybe absolutely my favorite subject of all time, and that is sin. I'm just kidding. All right, so uh, confessions of a New Age Christian. I haven't thought about sin and sanctification and unrighteousness and all that for quite some time. I don't struggle with it. I don't have this idea in the back of my mind that sin is this mystical, magical, powerful thing that can ruin my eternal security with God. There's so many parts of this subject that when people ask questions of me or my teachings or people who follow this stuff, it almost kind of like the, you know, the puppy dog tilted head look like, I forgot that people still think this stuff. I forgot that people still have these thoughts because it's so far from my mind. So it's been a long time since I've been in this place and in this discussion But I'm kind of responding to a handful of questions that arose in different ways from episode number 26, where I talked about salvation from what, right? And in that episode, I talk about that there's some foundational beliefs that people have about humanity and how humans are the problem, we're broken because there's a problem that it needs to be fixed. And thus you have the need for salvation from the brokenness and so on and so forth enter into substitutionary atonement where, you know, God killed Jesus so he wouldn't kill you. So I'm glad, you know, the murderous father who loves us perfectly doesn't have to murder us now because Jesus got murdered for us. And all of that stuff around salvation. But if you're like some of the people in this community who have reached out to me or I've seen been tagged on Facebook and stuff like that is, so you understand that salvation and that entire concept is (laughs) not what you thought. The next question that people have is, what about sin? What about the stuff that I do that I don't want to do? What about that thing you did to me just last week? And you're saying you're perfect in it because I think that was sin, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is, it's like we all look at life and we look at the evidence of 
action in our lives or in other people's lives. And we have a whole nother set of kind of overlapping assumptions with the need for salvation. And that is the need for punishment or the need for karma or the need for, you know, if you screw up, somehow it's going to come back to you and it needs to be paid for. And then, you know, who defines a screw up? Who defines that list? Moses wrote down some stuff and the Jews had a nice big list of over 600 laws that they had to follow. And then the Pharisees added more and more on top of those laws. And the definitions of sin became very cultural and they still remain cultural to this day. And we can talk about that. I don't know if we'll get there, but in the end, this episode is a response, my attempted response to some of those questions and the reality that there are many people in this community that if you haven't thought about sin this way in a long time, congratulations, you're free from sin and you are righteous and perfected. And we'll go over that for sure. So well done. You have moved past that first step of being born again and you're walking into a born of water and born of spirit reality. But you likely have a lot of people in your life or some people in life, friends, family, parents, children, whatever, that still think you're a sinner. They still think they're a sinner. And sin itself still holds a very large place in their spiritual mind. So this is an attempt to answer for you some of the things that maybe people are throwing at you. One of the first things you've probably heard is that, well, God can't stand to be around sin. So, you know, there has to be a payment. You have to be covered by the blood of Jesus so that when you stand in Jesus and God's presence, you don't get obliterated. And there's some areas of truth in that if you understand that Jesus' blood is his life and it's not about the sacrificial thing that we've made it. But more than that, let's just philosophically kind of tackle God can't be in the presence of sin. What? Like, some people would turn around and say sin can't be in the presence of God, which to that I would say, well, those people usually believe that Jesus was God. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but Jesus was regularly in the presence of sin. He became flesh and he walked dwelt among us and people didn't get obliterated in his presence. Sinners were actually loved and adored. So sin not being able to be in his presence would imply that everywhere a sinner goes, God is not there. And that breaks down really quick. If you want to be a scientist and say that God doesn't exist or anything like that, then you could maybe have a discussion. But most people, pretty much everybody who's going to make that argument is going to be someone who believes that God is everywhere and all that stuff. So how do you explain that? And then if sin can be in the presence of God and still survive, then the other version would be that God can't be in the presence of sin and somehow sin is like super powerful and scary and it's kind of like cooties, right? And your sin cooties might get on God and defile him. Again, stupid. So I don't need to unpack that anymore. But you've probably heard that, and that's why, because the sin can't be in the presence of God, air quotes, you need to be covered by the blood of Jesus, you need to be crucified, you need to be punished, you need to be thrown into the lake of fire because you cannot be in that presence and survive, and that sin in you cannot survive and all that stuff. Well, as far as I know, I survived on this earth with the presence of God in my life for years before I understood any of this stuff. And as far as I know, everyone else is doing just fine as well. 
the New Testament gives us three definitions of sin. The Old Testament gives us over 600 definitions of sin. The Pharisees gave another few thousand definitions of sin. And in the New Testament, we get three. And you'll find that two of them are really the same definition, just worded differently. One is that all unbelief is sin, or anything that is not of faith is sin. And so that's one of the definitions. And then the one that kind of is a sister definition is all unrighteousness is sin. And if you understand that righteousness comes by faith, then you're kind of circled back around to anything that is not of faith is sin. And then the other definition, I believe it's in James, it says to him who knows the right thing to do and he does not do it, to him it is sin. And that one's very interesting because it actually throws out to him it is sin. It doesn't say to everyone in the world it is sin. It is to you, the individual, that sin becomes an individual definition. So there are two definitions of sin in the New Testament. Again, all unrighteousness slash anything does not have faith and if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. All right. Now, let's unpack that first one. If I asked you how you become righteous and how you would become sinless and you understood these definitions, you would realize that to become sinless, you actually have to believe that you're sinless because anything that is not of faith is sin. So if you are looking for your works to prove your sinlessness, then obviously that is not going to get you to righteous perfection. The law proves that, that it's not by works lest any man should boast, right? But it's by faith. So it's so interesting to me that people can believe they're forgiven of all of their sins. And they go, yeah, 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 I'm forgiven. All the stuff I do wrong, I'm forgiven. And they understand that faith is what gives them that forgiveness, But they don't realize it's that same faith that also gives them sinlessness. So there's a difference between what you do. I believe it's hemartano is the Greek word for the action of sin. Hemartano, kind of think of the Spanish word for hand, mano. So hemartano, the things you do with your hands, the things you do with your actions. And then there's hemartia, which is the root or the nature of sin. And I'm not going to unpack that so much. You can look it up and you can find it in the Greek that there are some really cool uh, verse studies you can do to realize that people have no problem believing with faith in the cross that their hamartano, their actions have been forgiven. But the moment you talk about hamartia and the person that you are, the very nature of your being, being sinless, it's like... All the faith goes out the window. All the belief in the cross goes out the window. And they immediately want to go, yeah, but you did this and you did this and you did this. Well, wait a minute, guys. I thought it wasn't by the works anyway. So if it was not by works, then why are you throwing my works at me? If it's by faith and I tell you that I am righteous and perfected, we're going to get into a little word study on perfection. If I'm telling you by faith then I'm actually walking by the New Testament definition of sin. That I'm believing in my righteousness and my perfection in faith. And as a matter of fact, you're unbelieving it, and therefore you are a sinner. And so if it comes to the root nature of who you are, guys, let me just get down to the very real, especially in the New Age Christian world, I don't like spending a lot of time in Bibleese without getting practical. 
And here's what's practical. If you're walking around and you're a Christian or you're just a normal person who doesn't even identify as Christian, and you think that you suck, you need to try harder, and no matter how hard you try, you're going to make mistakes, you know, nobody's perfect. Sure, we all stub our toes, we all drop glasses. <laughs> My wife the other day, we had a glass bowl out and she just barely dinged it with a uh, bottle of whiskey that we were going to open up. And this glass like shattered in so many pieces just by this little ding. That was a mistake. She's not perfect. Okay, I get it. When we say nobody's perfect, I have no problem with the idea that you dropped a glass and you broke it. But when you say nobody's perfect and what you mean is that you're a sinner and you're sinful and it's an identity thing, guys, I'm telling you, it's only true because you believe it's true. And what if you believed that you were perfect and there was nothing wrong with you? You know, I would argue that that's exactly the test that Adam and Eve failed that they believed they needed to do something to become like God instead of believing they already were. And now the cross has been given to us as Christians. And more importantly, the true identity of humanity has been given to us in this coming age, in this new age of spirituality. And you realize, wait a minute, every idea that tells me I need to do something to become good, that I need to go do this and I need to prove it through my works and prove it. What if... All you did the rest of your life was sit on a park bench and be present in the moment and just enjoy existence. And nobody could see from the outside that you were perfect and righteous and holy. Would that be all the evidence you would ever need? And here's the deal. If it's true on that level, then it's got to be true on all levels. That's how principles work, right? If you need to prove your perfection through your works, then at what level... Tell me the list of works you need to do in order to actually prove it. The Catholic Church says you need to perform three miracles in order to be a saint. They've literally quantified this. Like, okay, if you do three miracles, then you are perfect. But really, if there's a list of things you can give me that tell me I'm not perfect, then fine. Then what is the list of things that show me that I am perfect? And you realize it's a fool's errand. Realize that there's no lists that could ever exist to keep you perfect or not perfect. That would be a rule of laws. And whoever's writing them would be playing God. And in reality, we know that the only way to righteousness is through faith. The only way to perfection is through faith. And again, we're going to do a little word study on that. So anything that is not a faith is sin. And so when you tell somebody, no, I am perfect, and they tell you, yeah, but, and then they give you a bunch of works, they're already showing you that they're not in faith. The other thing is that that list of to him who knows the right thing to do, and he does not do it, to him it is sin. And I've used the example of two people walking down the road. You know, there's a homeless guy, and the homeless guy, and God wants the homeless man to have $10. And I'm a stingy, judgmental jerk, and I never give homeless people money because I think they're all mooches. And Spirit is working on my heart to soften me and be more compassionate. And he tells me, hey, Austin, give that guy $10. And then I'm walking with you and you're a bleeding heart and you always give money and you don't have any discernment with your money. And you know, and Holy Spirit's trying to teach you discernment and teach you to be frugal. And Holy Spirit says, don't give that guy $10. You know, And we walk by. 
I ignore Holy Spirit and I don't give him the 10 bucks. You ignore Holy Spirit and you do give him the 10 bucks and we keep going. If you're judging the works or you're judging the outside, then you will see that the homeless guy got his 10 bucks and you would think, oh, good for him. But in reality, the entire exercise was a failure because I knew the right thing to do and I did not do it. You knew the right thing to do and you did not do it. And to each of us, to him, it is sin. Because the Holy Spirit is to the new covenant what the law was to the old covenant. So if you want to know the list that I've been talking about, look no further than the one that's written on your heart. The conviction of a life-giving spirit. There is nothing mechanical about sin. There is nothing mechanical about righteousness. It is organic. And I mean those in the very scientific uses of the word. We have these ideas of mechanical cog-based systems that if you can just give me my 10 rules to follow, then I will be righteous. And if I don't follow these 10, you know, I can, it's very mechanical, very static, and there's no ebb and flow in it. But then you go to this organic type of life where today giving $10 means that I'm following righteousness and tomorrow not giving $10 means I am still following righteousness that the Holy Spirit and that intuition and the heart is the thing that tells me when I should do this and when I should do that. And if I know what to do and I don't do it, then I convict myself. And there's, in the four agreements with Miguel Ruiz, he talks about the fourth agreement is always do your best. And the idea that you have to go to bed with yourself at night. Like, you may, your best may not always be the same. You might be exhausted, you might be sick. You know, so your best can vary but when you go to bed knowing that you did your best, then you can rest your head on the pillow. This is the same as sin. Sin is essentially, if you don't do your best and you know you have better to give, you will convict your own self because conviction comes from you. If you go back to uh, Jesus when he says he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and there's a passage where he says what the Holy Spirit's going to do, and he says, convict sinners of unrighteousness. But He convinces you of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit is not in your life to convict you. The Holy Spirit's actually in to convict you of how how wrong you are and what a sinner you are. The Holy Spirit's actually in your life to convince you of your righteousness and to remind you of who you are. So if you want to live a life free from sin, there's two things you got to do. You got to believe that you're perfect and righteous. And Jesus didn't only forgive your bad actions, but he actually paved the way for your whole nature to be forgiven. And again, this is very low on the spiral of truth. If you've listened to some of the other episodes about salvation from what and all that stuff, you can imagine just how much higher this conversation can get philosophically speaking. But on a surface level, if you're talking to your Christian friends or you're dealing with some of these questions yourself, you realize, did Jesus just pay for my sin actions or did he actually, am I actually a righteous person at the core is my identity no longer of a sinful Adam, but of a righteous Christ. And then absolutely you want to get to your actions, then follow the Holy spirit today. Giving 10 bucks is righteous tomorrow. It's a sin. Only, you know, that and judging each other from the outside is pointless. So, and then this does kind of come back to my second major point is, so first one is what is the definition of sin? The second one is how powerful is the cross and the Holy spirit? That was what led me to that prayer that I prayed. Uh, I've told the story a few times in different venues, but the short version being, I got so tired of sin in my life that I 
prayed a prayer to Spirit. I just said, look, either you fix this in me because I know the cross is more powerful than this. And I'm going to fast. And I'm going to pray. And I'd rather die of starvation than live another day with this sin. And 10 days later, I had an experience that changed my life forever. And I realized that I was, but at its core, I was believing that the cross was powerful enough to fix my nature. Not just, you know, wipe the slate clean of the stupid things I've done, but to actually fix who I was as a person. I didn't have the theology for it. I certainly couldn't have done this podcast episode or any of the episodes that I've done. I didn't understand it, but I just believed in the cross. And so if none of my explanations are convincing you, and you love Jesus, and you love the forgiveness and the righteousness, if none of these explanations convince your friends, I'm telling you, I've found that the one question you can ask them that kind of gets them to stop in their tracks is, how powerful was the cross? What does it mean that the work was finished? You know, there is a uh, an idea that people say, well, Jesus is coming back for a spotless bride because we're his bride and we are disgusting and we are spotted and ragged and that's he's going to come back and purify us. And we quote that verse as if it's actually in the Bible, but it's not. It's not in the Bible in that way. So Ephesians actually lays out that... Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also of the church, and he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Past tense. Gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. Past tense. By the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So we have this lie that in the future we'll be righteous and clean so that we can marry Jesus. That in the future that he will be the husband of the church and that the bride will be clean in the future. But if you go read Ephesians chapter 5, in verses, I just read 22 through 27, it's past tense, that he has presented to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, but that she would be holy and blameless, having sanctified her, having cleansed her, having gave up himself for her. He already did all this, people. Like, he already gave himself up for her. He, he went... And by the way, this idea that the spotless bride, like he can't come to you until you are clean. Well, then what is the cross for? Because he came to you when you were dirty. So either Jesus is coming to us when we're dirty and cleaning us up, or he's waiting for us to clean ourselves up. And either way, both of those versions fly in the face of the truth of he did come. He cleaned us up. And he has, past tense, already presented himself, us to himself. So that's how powerful the cross is. More importantly, if you understand the role of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to get a little bit uh, just mildly graphic for you. If Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Trinity and they are God, and you are the bride, if you just go to the imagery Jesus, Paul even says this, so husbands ought to love their wives in their own bodies. He who loves his own life 
wife loves himself and for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is uh, Ephesians five thirty-two. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's talking about the two becoming one flesh and he's talking about Christ and the church. Let me ask you, is it possible that the imagery of the male entering into the female and sowing the seed to produce an offspring that possibly with Christ being the husband and the church being the bride and the seed, the incorruptible seed that got sown into her was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit entered into the church? That literally the typological act of intercourse is personified in the Holy Spirit being inside of us, that that seed is inside of us presenting a new creation, the manifestation of the sons of God. What happens when a male sows a seed into a female? You have a baby. What happens when Jesus sows the Holy Spirit into the church? You get sons. That is how it works, people. So, again, how powerful is the cross Did he actually present a spotless bride? Did he come when you were dirty and then clean you up? And then did he literally enter himself into you in the form of the Holy Spirit so that you could become mature? I would say so. But it really does come down to all unbelief is sin. So do you believe this or not? This isn't about going out and proving it. It's about believing in the work of the logos, of logic, about believing in logic itself, making matter the same substance as spirit. Are you or are you not like Christ? Are you or are you not already cleaned up, already one with Christ? Is he not already your husband or are you waiting for some day when he does this thing that he already did 2,000 years ago. And then the evidence and the gift and the inheritance of that being a past tense thing is the very fact that you have the Holy Spirit and that your husband is inside of you. There's so much more to the spirit and soul being the male-female imagery that the Spirit of God is in your soul is a little bit of an insight into that. Maybe I'll do an episode on male-female in a little bit more detail someday. It'll probably be a class, but we'll see. So how powerful is the cross and how powerful is the Holy Spirit? Is their work actually finished? I uh, One of the real conversations that kind of spurred this entire episode was somebody saying, you know, well, the Holy Spirit's job is to sanctify us and his work is to bring us to completion. And I said, well, does his work actually work? Or does it like never really, cut? like, is it insufficient? Like, he's going to make you better, but let's be honest, guys, you need to die before you're going to be perfect. Or is that, is really never living a victorious life, never having victory, never being more than an overcomer? Like, so either you're waiting to be perfect and therefore death is your savior at that point, because who will free you from this except for death or the Holy Spirit and the cross? has already done it in past tense. So then finally, the third point, and probably my favorite one, because it really just just drives the point home, is 
This all kind of comes down to a misunderstanding, I believe, of the definition, the biblical definition of perfection. Because nobody's perfect. Well, let's go read what my favorite passage to make this point is in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. This is, I'm going to read the New American Standard Version. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he's literally talking about the resurrection from the dead being the body. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I was in a church down in Florida when I was learning this stuff, and I, the pastor read that passage and stopped right there. And I had already believed in perfection through faith, the righteousness by faith, but I was still studying it and still learning more. And I... He read this passage and I was like, oh boy, wow, that passage just say that we're not perfect and we need to lean forward. And lo and behold, his sermon was about, you know, sin management, like most sermons are. And yet I'm sitting in my pew or my chair and I kept reading and I'm like, wait a minute, keep reading the next verse. Dude, what are you doing? You're about to do a whole sermon on this and you're not even looking at the next verse. And of course, that's always the case. So that was verse 14, right? I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's now enter into sin management because none of us are perfect. That's probably the sermon you've heard. Have you ever read verse 15, the very next verse? Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Wait a minute. So verse 12, he says, I have not obtained it and I have not become perfect, but I press on for it. And then verse 15, he says, and you guys, you who are perfect, you should have the same attitude and hold on to the thing that you have attained. And I realized, oh my gosh, there is no way that this is talking about the same thing. And sure enough, if you go look into the Greek, these are two different words. One is teleo, T-E-L-I-O-O, and one is teleos, T-E-L-I-E-O-S. There's an E in the first one too, I forgot to leave that out. So in the first one, he says, not that I've become perfect, that's teleo. And in the second one in verse 15, as many as are perfect, teleos. And I'll skip to the end real quick and show you that teleo is actually a reference to physical perfection, and teleos is a reference to spiritual perfection. And how you know this is if you go look at other times that they are used. First is, I will show you in Luke 3.2, Jesus uses the word for teleo. And let me ask you, do you think Jesus was perfect? The kind of perfection we're talking about in this episode. Do you think he was sinless? Do you think he was righteous? Do you think his nature was perfect? Well, I would say so. Yet here, 
if you listen to that sermon that says Paul wasn't perfect and neither are you and we never will be, Jesus himself says that he wasn't. In Luke 13, 32, and he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. So according to Jesus' own statement in a response to the Pharisees about Herod, he's saying in that moment that he's not perfect, but that on the third day he shall be perfected. Now, I'm not going to unpack that all, a whole lot more in this episode, but you can go study it for yourself if this type of word study fascinates you. But if Jesus was spiritually perfect, and yet out of his own mouth he's saying that he will be perfect, then maybe, maybe... That word, the one same one Paul uses in verse 12, in Philippians 3.12, isn't talking about your spiritual perfection. So it is talking about your physical perfection. And I would even say you're more of a perfection in the completion of your goal or your purpose or your calling. But uh, even in mortality, there is, is lots of scriptural evidence to suggest to kind of bring that into play here. So Jesus himself said he wasn't perfect. If that's your standard, that was teleo, but teleos, which was used in verse 15, Philippians 3, 15, where he says, but as many as are perfect should have this mind. Jesus uses that word as well in Matthew 5, 48, when he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, let me ask you, what kind of perfection does God have? Clearly, it's not physical perfection because we are his body, but spiritual perfection. And so Paul is literally saying, guys, I haven't become physically perfect. I'm working on that. I'm pushing towards that. I do believe there's evidence that he's talking about immortality specifically, which is another podcast. But he's saying, but those of you who are spiritually perfect, you should have this mindset because you've already attained, past tense, spiritual perfection through faith in the cross, in Christ, all that stuff. And if you have this mindset, then push towards the goal of immortality. Believe for that physical manifestation of that perfection. And that, my friends, is really the interesting place that this takes you. If you realize that your inner world doesn't need any more, <laughs> any more saving, if you realize your spirit and your soul have been perfected, then what do you do with everything that's still going on? What is this sanctification? What is this process? And I would argue that what you're talking about at this point is the law of growth. And you're talking about the maturing of the sons of God. The thing that all of creation is waiting for is not for you to be born into God's family. You already are. It's not for you to be born righteous. You already are. You've already been born again. What are you talking about? It's that you would actually grow and become the very thing that you are inside. And there's a reason that you have to become like a child to enter into the kingdom. But then as Paul says, you put away childish things and you become an adult. Okay, it's no different than when you look at the large trajectory of humanity and you go out and you see People going, oh, if only we could go back to the garden. If only we could be like Adam and Eve and we'd be perfect again. Well, let me tell you, 
a child is innocent and that innocence is perfect. But let me also tell you that a child is useless. A baby is literally good for nothing but oohs and ahs, like, and a sense of love and a sense, but a a baby cannot do anything of its own. Everything has to be done for the baby. And so those who want to go back to the garden, what they're really saying is, I want to go back to being innocent, but immature. I don't want any responsibility. I don't want any sense of growth or process in becoming a manifested, mature son. I would rather just go back to being a baby with no responsibilities and the simplicity and innocence. And we think that that's what God wants of us. But if you look at the trajectory of man, if you can get away from this idea that everything was perfect and then we dove off a cliff and went to the lowest point and now we're climbing our way back up to the top of the cliff again, and you realize that that has never been the trajectory, that it was always you are a baby the humanity is, was a newborn child in the garden. And as we begin to grow, humanity as a whole is maturing. I believe we're coming out of this age. I believe we're coming out of our adolescent years. And creation has been groaning for humanity to get to this point. That we're actually understanding our role in God. We're understanding we're not kicking and screaming. We don't need all the rules and the regulations like a teenager does, right? That's when you have, I mean, think about it the childlike trajectory of a human into being a kid and then being a teenager and then being a college age young adult and then being an adult and look at what God has done through the covenant progressions. It's the same thing that he gave us a bunch of rules and underneath the Israelites and then he lacks those rules and he made them more simple and started to trust and trust you with your own your own conscience and your own guidance. And now I believe humanity is starting to realize that we're adults and that we have a role to play and that the father is entrusting us with his work. And that is what we do with our natural kids. And so if you want to talk about sanctification, you want to talk about process, by all means, you can talk about it on that level from the outside. But when you talk about it from this idea that you were in God's family and you don't have anything to do with righteousness and everything, and you're a screw-up, you know, you're just going to get to heaven by the skin of your teeth because you've covered in the blood of Jesus, and somehow, if you've got blood all over your face, then the Father's going to be happy with you, and all of this religious interpretation of our suckiness, then you're going to miss out on what God has really done through the cross, what he's really done in you, and you're going to miss out on what is true already, in your innermost being, that you are righteous, that you are perfect. This is what Paul means when he says, literally, there is no such thing as sin except those two definitions, unbelief, and if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. Well, belief in righteousness covers the inner man, and then the knowing right thing, not doing it, that covers the outer man. So if you literally did everything that the Holy Spirit told you to do and you never missed a beat, you would not only be perfect inside because of your faith, but you'd actually be perfect outside because you're always doing what you know to do. And Paul says, all things are lawful. Literally, there is no action that breaks the rules. Not all things are profitable. Oh my gosh, I always quote that verse. I rarely quote the second half because I love to watch religious people like freak out. Austin, you got to finish the verse. 
No, Paul really does mean it. All things are lawful. There's no such thing as breaking a rule anymore. You can literally do anything. God is not counting it against you. He has removed the very idea of sin in action out of his world, out of the universe. The universe doesn't even see it. You do because you have your own definition. You have that spirit. You have this thing inside of you convicting you and guiding you and everything like that. But as far as God's concerned, either Jesus removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, or God's still counting him against you. You can't have it both ways. So as far as God's concerned, there is no such thing as sin. It's done. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but this is how this works. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that your innermost man is done, taken care of, righteous, good, nothing more to do? And now, I should probably do an episode on to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Maybe that'll be part two of this. Now that you know your innermost being is done, how do you live on the outside? Yep, I'm definitely going to do an episode on that. Part two, ready to go. Um, and I got to do one on Israel as well. So yeah, the next episode I'm going to talk about, I've just done that inner inner world of, of righteousness and perfection. Now we're going to talk about that external world of righteousness and perfection. And that's the one that everyone's really obsessed about because they do look at those things. They go, how could you? So if you did that, then you must still be a sinner on the inside. Guys, they're not the same thing. And the cross is powerful enough and was powerful enough to make you righteous, perfected, past tense, holy. You are already teleos. You are already perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Just be it. You don't got to do anything. Just be in faith that the cross was that powerful. That's all you got to do. And I promise you, if you do that, if you just believe it first, you will be amazed at how your works follow suit. Because it is out of the heart that you act. And if you believe in your heart that you are righteous, do you think your actions would actually follow suit a little bit more? I believe so. This doesn't give you a license to go be stupid. But if you truly believe it, you won't want to be stupid. I don't want to be stupid either. So let's not be stupid and let's just believe God. And then, uh, yeah, I'm looking, actually looking forward to the next episode now because I've learned a crap ton of stuff about what to do with that other idea of always following the Spirit. And it is time to uh, kind of do an overview there. So thanks for listening to this episode. I hope it has blessed you. I hope, oh my gosh, that sounded so religious. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I hope it's uh, brought some peace to your mind as far as maybe some questions you had, or at the very least given you some ammunition to and some tools to address the questions of people in your life who are worried that you're going to go to hell because you think you're perfect. Share this episode with them. And um, if there's little parts, there's parts where I'm a bit smarmy, I'm sure, because I get smarmy with this particular subject because it annoys me that people don't believe the cross made them perfect. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. And, you know, at that point, it gets so silly when you have this kind of halfway righteousness thing. And when you don't understand the difference between your works and your nature, it gets very confusing. So maybe at the very least, this can help you define that for them. And uh, yeah, look forward to the next episode now. Thanks again. As always, please consider donating. Um, do make a living off of this project. And uh, we're getting more and more people engaged. You can go to newagechristianity.org. Scroll down to the bottom. There's a donate link. There's also a donate link on our Facebook page. 
New Age Christianity page. And yeah, engage in the conversation. If you got questions, stuff you would like me to cover on this podcast or write blogs about, you know, hit me up on Facebook and uh, join the discussion. Love you guys. Thanks for your time. As always, God bless.